Welcome to the podcast for the December 2011 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here, and this month I'm joined by Alison Rohn from TLN. In a moment, we're going to focus on an author interview I did with Dr. Brenda Bamwell. She is one of the authors of a study from Canada, specifically looking at the use of MRI for children experiencing their first demyelinating event as a future predictor of MS. Very interesting study it is too. But just before that, Alison, just walk us through some of the other highlights in the December issue. Okay, the first paper I'd like to highlight is a report of a phase three trial of a dopamine stabiliser called Predopidine for the treatment of Huntington's disease. This was a randomised double-blind placebo-controlled trial that aimed to look at the effects of the drug on motor deficits in 437 patients with the disease. After 26 weeks of treatment, there was no evidence of a benefit of the drug on the primary endpoint, the modified motor score derived from the unified Huntington's disease rating scale. But there was evidence for a significant improvement for patients taking the 90 milligram but not the 45 milligram dose of the drug on one of the tertiary endpoints, the total motor score of the same rating scale, which includes extra measures of motor function. And this difference was explained largely by improvements in eye movements and dystonia. Neither dose of the drug was beneficial on measures of behavioural, functional or cognitive status, but it was shown to be safe and well tolerated. As the author of the accompanying commentary says, although this trial does not provide conclusive evidence that predopidine is an effective treatment for Huntington's disease, it is a welcome step in the right direction. Excellent. Sounds very interesting. And what else have you got from the issue? The second paper is a review of primary dystonia syndromes, which are a group of hyperkinetic movement disorders whose hallmark feature is involuntary sustained muscle contraction. In this review, the authors describe the primary forms of dystonia and the more complex forms known as dystonia plus syndromes. They focus on the clinical features and diagnosis, and they also discuss current understanding of the pathogenesis of dystonia, covering evidence from genetic, cell biological, imaging and neurophysiological studies. And a quick roundup of anything else in the issue. So we have a prospective observational study on spreading depolarizations and outcome after traumatic brain injury. And we have reviews on familial amyloid polyneuropathy, on Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, and on animal models for Parkinson's disease. Thanks very much, Alison. And let's now hear more about a very interesting research article published in this month's issue. It concerns the use of MRI in children to look for future development of multiple sclerosis. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of the study, Dr. Brenda Bamwell from the University of Toronto. And just to say that the first author on the paper was Len Verhey. He is a graduate student, PhD student, working with Dr. Bamwell at the University of Toronto, represented by the Canadian Demyelinating Disease Network. And the study itself was funded by the Canadian Multiple Sclerosis Scientific Research Foundation. Dr. Banwell, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. You're one of the authors of a research article, and it's specifically looking at a way of identifying in a paediatric population children who may be at a future risk of multiple sclerosis after they've had a first demyelinating event. Tell us the rationale for the study. Why did you actually need to do it in the first place? We know that approximately 25 to 30 percent of children who have a first attack of the immune system on the brain, uh, nerves to the eyes or the spine, will uh, continue to have further attacks that define multiple sclerosis. And approximately, obviously, 60% will have a one-time event, will recover generally quite well, and will not have multiple sclerosis. Determining, particularly at the time of that first attack, which children are destined for multiple sclerosis and which children 
will ultimately have a transient illness to date has been very difficult. You can imagine that has enormous importance for, of course, treating the child and planning whether they should be on medicine to prevent attacks, and, of course, uh, for the family and the child themselves in terms of coping with this sudden loss of function and an uncertain future. So we chose to uh, look at MRI because it provides an, uh, an excellent window into what's going on with the brain, spine, and optic nerves and provides a chance to see whether or not there are particular features that indicate that a child is really experiencing the first attack of multiple sclerosis and perhaps other features that may be more common in children with a transient illness. Thank you very much. So clearly MRI is the key methodological issue here. Can you just give us a little bit more detail on how you actually address the research question then, give a bit more detail about how you actually did the study? This is part of a Canadian national program and we are funded to look at all of the children across the country and all of our pediatric healthcare facilities who experience this first attack of demyelination. And we acquire uh, MRI scans of the brain at that first moment or within the first few days of their clinical onset. And then again, at three months, six months, 12 months, and annually. Using those scans, we applied a scoring tool that Len Verhey, my PhD student, worked on as part of his uh, doctoral thesis. And using that tool, we scored all of these MRI scans in a very consistent manner in order to identify ultimately predictors of MS diagnosis uh, and predictors of non-MS diagnosis. In so doing, we had over 1,100 MRI scans to evaluate because we've enrolled over 300 children in our national program and are now in the second phase of that program. So we've been following these children now for over four years and are moving towards following them for eight years. Thanks very much. And moving to the results, how would you summarize the key results and which MRI parameters did you find were the best predictors of later MS development? So focusing on the first MRI scans, because that's the predictive model that we were particularly looking at in this study, we found that if a child had, in a, what, I'll say the, the phrase and then explain it, a, a T1 hypo-intense lesion, which means an area in the brain where the brain region looks darkened compared to the normal appearance on a particular MRI sequence. So if children had even one lesion in the brain with that characteristic, and if they then also had a lesion in what's called the periventricular region of the brain, if they had both of those characteristics, they were markedly more likely to fall into the multiple sclerosis group, 34 times more likely than children who had neither. So these two parameters are helpful on a couple of levels. One, because they are re uh, really quite easy to identify uh, using standard imaging. So this is a tool that could be applied in a clinical environment. They are features that are easily detected on the types of images that people acquire, not just in a research environment like ours, but also in typical clinical imaging. And they support two aspects of the biology of multiple sclerosis. So a T1 hypo-intense lesion, um, and we did confirm that these lesions were persistent over time. So even though we detected them on the first scan, the majority of these lesions would be what we call chronic because they persisted on our serial imaging That suggests a, a destructive process, and that is a characteristic of multiple sclerosis. So one could appreciate that having that evidence present on a first MRI scan supports that there's been a chronic process already brewing when that child has the first attack. And then the second feature, the periventricular lesion, that's a region that, going back more than 100 years with the, uh, the original seminal publications on multiple sclerosis and its pathology, that particular brain region, and more specifically the small veins in the periventricular region are often sites of inflammation in multiple sclerosis. 
So those two findings make biological sense and are really quite robust predictors of multiple sclerosis as compared to transient demyelination in children. So in summary then, it would appear that these MRI findings offer real advantage over other ways of trying to assess future multiple sclerosis risk in children. Is that right? Is it better than what's been available before? Yes. Now, the um, so, so we did compare our, our proposed uh, findings to prior work in the field, and these criteria performed better or superiorly. Now, one caveat, of course, is that that it has to be repeated in other series of children in other centers because when you propose criteria, they traditionally do perform better in the population in which you created them. So that, that's something that will have to be uh, repeated by other groups. But the other advantage of these criteria is their, is their simplicity. And the uh, other criteria that have been proposed in the past have either been much more complicated, making them less readily applicable in a clinical environment, or uh, there were some very uh, helpful criteria proposed by the French group a number of years ago, but they, although very, very specific, were not very sensitive. So only identified a small percentage of, of MS patients, whereas our proposed criteria identified 84% of our MS patients and were 93% specific. We feel these will be quite useful. Indeed. And what are the advantage of these findings, do you think, over and above diagnosis? Could there be implications for treatment decisions or just generally for understanding of the development of MS in children? I think potentially both. We're moving into a new era in the care of children with multiple sclerosis. There are approximately eight new uh, therapeutic agents that are currently sitting before regulatory authorities in Europe and North America that will require, due to much more stringent regulatory requirements, a pediatric investigation plan. So while this has been um, a process that's been in place for a number of years, the regulatory authorities are really enforcing the mandate that pharmaceutical companies, as they launch new therapies for any disease, and in this case we're speaking about multiple sclerosis, that they have a plan for how they would do a trial in the pediatric population because the pivotal trials are invariably done uh, in adults over age 18. So as these trial designs are now coming forward, there have to be both safety metrics and there have to be outcome metrics that are appropriate for the clinical trial environment. And we feel this will be a particularly helpful set of data in order to identify children that are candidates for clinical trials and obviously would then be entering into a trial at the earliest possible moment after they've been identified as being at risk for the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So I think it has implications for future clinical trials. In day-to-day clinical practice, It has implications for how you speak to a family, both with respect to counseling them that the MRI is uh, strongly predicting uh, that this really is the first uh, multiple sclerosis event and the support and resources that then need to be brought to bear for that child, but also to be able to reassure families whose child is at considerably less risk or or even extremely low risk in order to provide some reassurance. And and, that doesn't abdicate careful clinical observation uh, because no, no criteria is absolutely accurate. But it's enormously helpful for families to have some parameters placed around the likelihood that their child has just developed a chronic illness compared to a transient one. So I think there's several uh, implications of this work. The MRI work that we're talking about now follows on our entire national program, which was also published in Lancet Neurology a couple months ago, where we showed other parameters that are important in looking at and identifying children with multiple sclerosis, including their age at presentation, the presentation itself um, and some of the laboratory findings 
including prior viral infection and vitamin D values. So just in summary there, these data, these findings have implications for the clinical trials, future clinical trials that you've mentioned, but also at the same time in parallel to clinical practice. So actually the parameters, these MRI parameters that gave a clear result in your setting, you think have direct clinical relevance straight away? In any study, the first thing to say is, of course, Another group, an independent cohort, have to validate them. I believe they will, not only because this is a large study which gives more security that these findings are robust, but also because the findings that we've now shown in children bear some similarity to uh, predictive models that are also present in adult MS. Although there are slight differences, they they do follow with some of the findings that, that have been predicted for adult multiple sclerosis patients. And we do believe that the biology of multiple sclerosis ultimately is the same in pediatric and adult onset disease with some differences relating to the onset in a pediatric patient versus an adult. So I think that when one looks at these criteria, because they align well with uh, modifications and changes in the adult diagnostic criteria, I believe they will be particularly useful. And I think the the general uh, concept of being able to identify multiple sclerosis at onset is one that is now really quite prominent in the adult MS world as well rather than waiting for new disease over time, which has previously been the hallmark of multiple sclerosis, is the multiple attacks, multiple new lesions on imaging. You know, that inherently meant a delay from that first clinical event until you could prove uh, dissemination of disease in time. These criteria and, uh, you know, applying them moving forward remove the time component which has obvious implications for prompt diagnosis and management. Well, it's very interesting and obviously potentially very important study. But in the meantime, Dr. Brenda Bamwell on the line from the University of Toronto. Many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet Neurology. Absolutely, my pleasure. Many thanks again to Brenda Bamwell and to Alison Rowan. Thank you, Richard. Thank you all for listening. See you next month.